Yeah. Got some uh, interesting questions during the uh, break, and uh, I would hope that there'll be some more as we move along here. And my purpose in the in the second part of this, well, really the purpose of the first part was to end it and give you a break, so we come back for the second part. But um, I want to talk about the church as it entered the 19th and the 20th century and the second half of the 20th century, of which you and I are certainly a part and which we're most interested in. You know, in thinking about this, I thought that when a baby is born, a baby only has three desires. And I've had some experience with babies. Gordon is our number three of four sons. And uh, as I recollect, <clears throat> all three of them were pretty much the same. They wanted to be fed. They wanted the other end cleaned, and they wanted to be hugged a lot, picked up and hugged a lot. And, and life uh, could be pretty well uh, defined if those felt needs could be met on their part. And as we come into the Christian life, we have to remember that the Lord uses the, the human life, the life, our natural life, as an illustration of our spiritual life. So when people come to know the Lord, they come in usually in response to felt needs, they, they, the burden of sin with young folks. Young people, high schoolers, it seems that because of peer pressure and loneliness that they, they're more interested in Jesus as a friend. And we adults, become, and I became a Christian as a child, but it seems like to me that Christians who first come to know the Lord as adults come with a great sense of void and awareness. And they come in, but, it, but in any event, they come in with a sense of felt need and the need being met by Jesus Christ. And uh, they don't really care anything about roots any more than those babies care anything about roots. They don't care who they are, where they came from. They just really don't give any thought to it. And uh, as, as believers, we come in and we really don't care who we are. Oh, we have a need. Jesus meets that need. We, we have our needs met in the Word, in prayer, and fellowship with other Christians and as we move along. And, and I trust that, that our discussion about really who we are, our roots, where we came from, uh, what God was doing when He brought us on the scene uh, will be helpful to you in the progress of a life just like uh, as you get older in, in your natural self, you do develop a concern about who you are, you know, where you came from, who your, um, who your ancestors were, and, and what are the forces of, uh, of government and society which uh, uh, made your existence possible. And so that's what we're doing here, uh, trying to, do, to follow the, the ideas of history that have led us to the place where we're serving God in the latter part of the 20th century. And I've gotten up to the beginning of the 19th century, with, uh, and I was asked a question to go back and restate again what John Nelson Darby brought to the party, so to speak, in the 19th century, beginning in 1830, when his ministry actively began. Um, the, it probably would be easier to say that, that Darby, as I said earlier, let me just put it this way, Darby was not a man who wrote in such a way that his read, reading uh, was easy, and so his, the reading of Darby was not popular. His greatest impact was in small group and one-on-one encounters as he expressed his concern for the Christian life and then, I believe, secondarily, the, the developing idea that the Scriptures revealed God as having a continuing commitment that had not been terminated. The church, by and large, as a result of Augustine, concluded that God's interest in Israel was terminated back here. It was terminated on the basis that they, they asked for the crucifixion of Jesus. They rejected Him, and the church had, had developed a system of thinking which said that, that all of God, all of His affection for Israel was translated into affection for His church. 
And so they had, had denied, it served their purpose to deny that God had any continuing commitment to Israel as a nation. And so what Darby did was he came along as he read the scripture in connection with his pursuit of sanctification or the Christian life. He, like a lot of laymen, came on to those passages of scriptures in the old and the new, which convinced him that God still had a continuing commitment to the, uh, to the nation. Now, because Darby was not readable and because he wasn't a great public speaker, we have to look to other men who, who did a better job of articulating and fleshing out what he said. And there's no question that the most powerful influence for Darby's thoughts was the Schofield Bible, still owned by the Oxford uh, Publishing Company, and uh, a book that was one of the most popular versions of the Bible ever published. Of course, it was King James Version, pure and simple, with the footnotes of Schofield added to it. And Schofield was an attorney. He was a reformed alcoholic. And uh, he had no theological credentials whatsoever uh, for, the, for his work. He was a product of uh, a sweeping band of Bible teachers who crisscrossed the United States and England and other, Australia and other places in the world. And uh, these men were, were Schofield, uh, Moody was a part of it. Moody was a shoe salesman that God ruined by making a preacher out of him. You know, he, he, he ruined a dairy farmer when he made Billy Graham into an evangelist. You know, he was a good dairy farmer until he turned evangelist. But anyway, uh, but the, Schofield is who, who wrote the first, who produced the first edition of the Schofield Bible in 1909. Uh, we have to look to Schofield and say this is this is the end product of, of what the American scene gleaned from uh, Darby and from the the wave of Bible teaching which occurred. It seems like that at the end of the 19th century that orthodoxy was uh, was orthodox Christianity was dull and stuffy, and uh, it was shot through with a liberalism which had come primarily from Germany and uh, which had begun to question the authority of the Bible, not question it, deny it. And uh, the, the Orthodox Church seemed to be more interested in, in, in maintaining its institutional existence. And so in the American scene and also in the European scene, there came a group of, of Bible teachers. And I mentioned Moody's. Uh, one of the greatest ones, and he lived until uh, after 19, until about 1950 was... Uh, was um, Harry Ironside. I remember many years ago I was in Galveston. Galveston was a port town, and it had suffered economic deterioration at that time because of the Houston Ship Canal, and it was really only a shadow of what it had once been as a great port city. And I was visiting the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church, and we're looking at the church, and he was an evangelical. And, and so he was saying, well, he said, the church is never full. He said, the last time this church was full, was when Harry Ironsides came to preach. He said, when Ironsides came to town, you didn't even have to publicize it. You just let the word out. Just let it out that Ironsides was in town and the church would fill. Yes? Well, maybe you get to the point, but just before you stop, along with the same point, you said uh, somebody in Europe or something, a friend of yours, a theologian or something, can say to you, that's the most rampant thing sweeping the United States at this time. What? Okay. Thank you. I'll def I'll def I'll define it for you. Okay. Um, 
What I'm trying to say is that to give you the, the flavor of this movement, and so the two men who wrote most permanently into our day were C.I. Schofield and Schofield Bible and some other work that he did, and then Lewis Berry Chafer in, in 1948 published his eight-volume systematic theology, which was, quote, dispensational in, uh, in, in its flavor. Now, the reason I mention those two men in particular is because when you talk about Darby, it's kind of hard to find out what Darby really believed because he didn't write well. So these men wrote what Darby thought. Are they built on Darby to the extent that we can say Darbyism, or whatever you want to call it, that's not a real good word, but Darbyism, dispensationalism, or whatever it is, uh, is best defined in the writings of Chafer and is best defi- and before him uh, in, in popular fashion in the Schofield Bible. Okay, now what were the distinctives? What did they say? Well, I said that, that, that Darby was in pursuit like all other protest movements of the Christian life, and he also became an exponent of God's continued commitment to the nation of Israel as an ethnic national group. This is true of Chafer, it's true of Schofield, it's true of that. And that is the definition, this is by definition, is by definition, is, is what dispensationalism is all about. The belief that God has never set aside, has never terminated, has never quit his commitment to fulfill his promise to national ethnic Israel to put them in the land and establish the kingdom over which Jesus, the returned Jesus Christ, will reign. The church for 1,500 years had denied that by silence and by open denial. Darby raised the question again beginning in 1830. And the theologian that I quoted to you and said that it, uh, he said to me, he said, dispensationalism is the prevailing view of the evangelical world today. And he says, I know nothing about it whatsoever. And he was saying that apologetically. He was saying, I must study it and find out what it's all about. It is the prevailing view of the church today. Uh, I think that could be demonstrated. Uh, Fairly satisfactorily, but it would make some, you know, some people would not like to have it demonstrated, so I don't want to, you know, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I think it can be demonstrated. Billy Graham, for instance, is a product of that school of thought. And, uh, everybody seems to get along with Billy. But anyway, uh, uh, the, the distinctive features of it, the distinctive features are that conviction that the church never did, the church is a new event in the program of God. It did not replace Israel in the program of God. It is a new event, all of its own, beginning on the day of Pentecost, on the finished, based on the finished work of Christ and the coming of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, as He came dramatically on that day. There is another feature to it, which uh, which Chafer and Darby and all of them would agree on, and that is that the quality of your Christian life is based on the exercise of your will. Now, I'm going to get into this more tomorrow on the discussion of grace. But Chafer would say that the quality and depth of your Christian life is based on your energy, your commitment, your discipline to the achievement of depth, quality, breadth, or whatever you want to call it of your Christian life. You do not come into the family of God through justification or regeneration. By any of your self-effort, you pursue discipleship as a matter of effort. It involves a decision. It involves a process by which you pursue it. 
And I would say, in answer to your question, that is specifically the distinctives that Darby interjected, but the only way we can figure out what he said is to read Schaefer and to read Schofield. Where do they get the word It really doesn't have anything to do with the whole thing. It's a buzzword. It's a it's a pejorative which can be used. It has nothing to do with the essence of dis uh, the essence of the system. is not is not involved in the in the dis, in the discussion of the dis, dispensationalism. Is a word which has no value. The only reason you use it is because it conjures up certain things for other people in understanding. Uh, the great Presbyterian theologian Charles Hodge had four dispensations. Schofield had seven. Everybody has at least two, so obviously the number doesn't do anything for you unless the winner of the contest is who gets the most. But anyway, uh, in my judgment, it has no value. It has no value for discussion purposes. I don't, I don't, don't shy away from it. I will be glad to discuss it with you, and I'm not trying to put it aside. But I'm saying, when I say that the distinctives that were produced through Darby and his followers were those two distinctives, the pursuit of the Christian life, requires discipline and energy on your part, involves a determination on your part to pursue it, and God's commitment to ethnic Israel. Now, any other questions? And I welcome questions. I'd rather, almost rather function with questions than uh, any other way. So, All right. Um, end of the 19th century, and uh, we, we've come in with this... Uh, what did I do with that chalk? Am I missing one here? Okay, I'm here. Uh, end of the 19th century, uh, end of the United States. Somebody asked me, why did we have, the question was, why so many denominations in the United States? Uh, the people who came to the United States were rugged individualists to start with. They had shed, consciously shed the state church idea of Europe. And so in this boiling cauldron of activity, economic and everything else in the United States, anybody who had a new idea could create a denomination and most of them did. And so the result of it is there were a lot of church splits, there were a lot of arguments, there were a lot of fights, the Civil War caused many splits between the North and the South, and so the result of it is that the United States became the very seat of this multiplicity of denominations. Strangely enough, out of that, the Lord produced Great strength. This, this, this fracturing of institutional unity did not stop the Lord from using this as the dynamic reservoir of resources for the great missionary movement and the spread of the gospel in the last century and a half. Uh, the, the dynamic of the United States has been indispensable to what's been going on. Well, uh, so I've said that, that it was, we come through the 19th century, we come into the 20th century, we come with three, I repeat myself, we come with three strands of thought. And you and I, to some degree, are products, none of us in this room is unaffected by any of them. We may be more in one than the other, but nobody in this room is unaffected by all three. One of them is the, the historic Augustinian uh, Reformed thought that it, it's sort of the, the, the mainstream. Coupled with that, number two is the frontier revivalism that followed in the wake of Western uh, development of the United States. And then three, when Darby's uh, uh, philosophy or theology or his additions to those traditional theology came in, uh, that was an addition which came into the 20th century. And so those three streams affect every one of us in the room to some degree or another, uh, unless somebody is a very, very rare exception in the United States. Yes, sir. Frontier movement is 
Well, that was uh, the, the holiness movement, as I understand it, really was not present until the early part of this century. So, back in the 19th century, the que- it might have looked strangely similar, but the holiness movement that we think of today as the progenitor of the present charismatic movement, uh, J.I. Packer told me, was not older than this century. That it was so, but it was a very enthusiastic form of Christianity, very emotional, very enthusiastic form of it. And we come into this this century, there is a deadness in Orthodox Christianity. There is a deadness in... And uh, how many of you have ever heard of the Auburn Affirmation? Anybody here ever heard of the Auburn Affirmation? About 1920, sometime in there, uh, within the Presbyterian Church, there was an affirmation signed by a great many ministers, as I recall, in which it was declared that it was no longer necessary, if ever had been necessary, to believe in the virgin birth of Christ to be ordained as a Presbyterian pastor. Now, a minister. There may have been other things in that affirmation, but this was a public affirmation that new ideas were more important than old ideas, and out the window went a lot of uh, orthodox uh, things which had been present. And one thing you can say about the Roman Catholic Church, the the, the virgin birth of Christ was never really in question in the Catholic Church and had not really been in question in the Re- Reformation Church. But because of the efforts of the of German theologians primarily, the prevailing view at the end of the 19th century was one of waning adherence to the Bible and orthodoxy was surrendering itself to uh, institutional goals of Christianity. In 1899, I guess it was, the Christian century magazine that was published as the, by the University of Chicago. and uh, Anyway, it named itself the Christian Century. It's still a premier religious publication after all these years, but it named itself the Christian Century because it anticipated that the 20th century would be the century in which everything would become Christian. The church would finally win the battle and take over the world. That the church's influence would be so pervasive that this would be known as the Christian Century. Now, I read the century religiously, and I would say that as the century moves on, they're not as optimistic as they were a hundred years ago. <laughs> I do not know what they're going to call themselves in the next century, but I think they calls for a name change because they missed it for the 20th century. But they reflected the idea of this great institutional church, ecumenical in nature, the reuniting of the of the of the Reformation churches with the and we're going to get this thing all organized and this thing's all going to work out and we're going to live with peace and happiness and man is going to love man and brotherly love is going to be the order of the day and like I said they are a little bit pessimistic here in 1986 eight, 1986 but you came into the 20th century with a repudiation of orthodox uh, orthodox uh, um, uh, orthodox traditional beliefs which had been common in most cases to the Roman Catholic Church and to the Reformation Church. In 1909, Albert Schweitzer wrote a book in which he called The Search for the Historic Jesus. In the 19th century, the hobby of the theologians in Germany had been to reconstruct and identify the man Jesus without relying on the Bible, biblical records, because everybody knew that they were prejudiced and biased and inaccurate. In 1909, Schweitzer said, Fellas, he was one of them. He said, fellas, he really did believe and say those things. And we're kidding ourselves if we think we can discover Jesus apart from the Scriptures. 
And so into the 20th century, there came the, the disillusionment theologically, the disillusionment politically. World War I, in many ways, was the worst war the world had ever seen. And by the time it was over, all of the notes of optimism that had prevailed in the 19th century were down in flames. It was, it was a shambles. And so at the end of World War I, the Orthodox Church uh, was uh, dead. The uh, liberal church in all of its enthusiasm had, had suffered a major setback and uh, the evangelical world uh, was a pretty dismal sight to look at it, uh, the Auburn Affirmation and all of those things being considered. And uh, I would say that, uh, that uh, my memories are very good of, post, of pre-1940 Christianity, evangelical Christianity. And there may be some problems with the current form of evangelicalism, but men take it from one whose life enables him to see both of them. It is so much better with all of its problems today than it was in pre-1940 that uh, there's just no comparison. Uh, and uh, one writer, one liberal writer said, he said, I thought we had them whipped. He said, I thought the evangelicals were completely whipped only to discover after World War II that they were very much alive. I hated to disappoint the old boy, but he, there was some reason for what he, he looked out on the scene and saw it, uh, say in 1940, 1938, 39, and 40. Well, a, a curious thing happened in World War II, after World War II. A curious thing happened. We have the beginning of a phenomenon that is unbelievable, and that is the parachurch movement of the United States. Now, the missionary societies had already been created on a parachurch basis when when the, denomina- the denominations uh, finally got into the Missionary Act, but there were missionary societies that had been, fi- had been formed in England and the United States, and so the parachurch movement was not, um, was not totally new. But when Jim Rayburn uh, started Young Life in about 1938, 1940, Dawson Trotman had already been on the scene with the Navigators. And Billy Graham had graduated from Wheaton College and uh, was with Youth for Christ. Uh, Bill Bright was a little late coming along. It was the late 40s before he got started. But when, Christian, when World War II was over, you began to see the most burgeoning expressions of evangelical Christianity that you could possibly imagine especially if your memory extended back to pre-World War II and how it looked. One well-placed bomb at Wheaton College in 1940 would have destroyed much of the evangelical leadership that we enjoy today. It's unbelievable how many men were... And all I'm saying is that the funnel, that the, 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 the river, the stream of evangelical leadership had become so narrow that from about 1935 to 1945, most of it was on Wheaton College uh, campus in Wheaton, Illinois. And that's how, how slim it was as far as its, uh, its numerical relationship to the total population. But after World War II, the, the parachurch movements took off. And in my judgment, the parachurch has dominated the body of Christ for the last 30, 35 years. The vitality, the experience of the church has been drawn institutionally from the parachurch. Now, 
as you all well know, this is not without tension. Uh, I don't. I'm not going to ask you to hold up your hands, but I speak on this subject in various forms in a lot of different places around the country, and I know that men who who want to serve God have uh, a experience which is very very common, if not unanimous, but very very common. It's that sooner or later in their Christian lives they run afoul to the claims of the local church. And uh, they run afoul of the claim that whatever you're doing, it, mu- it would be best be done under the auspices and on the premises of the local church and under the authority of the uh, governing body of that church. This is a common experience. And just let me say that... that um, let me say that that the institutional church um, is um, at the end of the first century is described for us in the book of Revelation in chapters two and three. Now I want you to get the impact of this that that the church came into being at the end of the first third of that century. Okay. Sixty years later, sixty years after the finish of the public ministry of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God gives us a commentary on the condition of the institutional church in Revelation 2 and 3, where he describes seven churches that are located in a kind of a semicircle in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. If you will read those, you will find that the finest thing that is said about any one of those seven churches is that it's weak and faithful. That's the strongest thing that's said about any of them. They are described as dead. They're described as immoral. They're described in every negative term in one or other of those seven churches. Now, I want to say to you that when people speak on the church, the most ignored passage of Scripture in all of the Bible is Revelation 2 and 3, which is the last description of the church given to us by the Holy Spirit. Nobody likes the description of the church as it occurs in Revelation 2 and 3. The institutional church can be summarized in Revelation 2 and 3 in general terms as a can of worms. There's no way you can read Revelation 2 and 3 and look at the institutional church and say that based on the description, the representative description, which the Spirit of God gives us in the selection of those seven churches, and the description of their spiritual condition is other than the can of worms. Now, there is another statement in there, and I'm talking about two chapters, and I'm not going to turn to it, but universal to all seven of those churches is the recognition that within each one of those churches there is a group of people whom the Spirit of God describes as overcomers. And in every case, what you understand about the overcomer is that his Christian life is not dependent upon the condition of the institutional form of which he is a part. He has made a decision, apparently. An overcomer is a person who has made a decision that he's going to serve God no matter who the Pope is. He is going to serve God no matter who the preacher is. He is going to be doing the things that Christians do 
in serving God no matter what the condition of the local church is. He does not say that if John MacArthur or Jim Kennedy or Ray Stedman were the pastor of my church, I could enjoy my Christianity and get on with the business of serving God. The overcomer is one who has made his decision to serve God no matter how many worms are in the can at any given time. And the unifying thing of Revelation 2 and 3, the most underused passage of Scripture in the, to analyze the institutional church, the last commentary which the Holy Spirit makes, the unifying feature is that in every one of them there are overcomers. Now, I don't know how far you all drove to get here. You came from Knoxville. You came from Atlanta. I don't know how far you came. But let me say that in the coming here, you have testified to the fact that you're an overcomer. You are going to serve God. You've come here to hear whatever it is that Gordon has put together for you. And as a result of it, you're interested in going back into life where you live and being significantly alive for Jesus Christ. You are not going to be blown about by whatever condition prevails in the institutional church at any given point in time. I said earlier that I think that the quality of the Christian life in the latter part of the 20th century in the United States has been drawn from the parachurch expressions. Well, let's stop and think about what does a functioning Christian look like? I said earlier that you could be a good church member just with attendance and giving, acquiescence in all of the decisions and careful monitoring of your sin profile so it doesn't show too badly. But what does a functioning Christian look like? Well, a functioning Christian would be a man of the Word, a person of the Word. There's no growth possible without the Word of God. Uh, I don't know how much a weekly intake, I don't know how many verses you should memorize, I don't know uh, how many chapters you should read. I just know that there has to be an intake of the Word of God. There has to be a dynamic relationship between the believer and the Word of God, the written Word, as he fellowships with the one that the written Word talks about and describes as the living Word. We've got to talk to God. You've got to be in prayer. I don't know of anything that men are frustrated more by than their prayer life. Uh, it's just not our nature to pray. It is just not our nature to declare our dependence. Uh, we were taught as little boys not to cry when we skinned our knee, you know, and we, the little boys don't do those things and it's carried on throughout, throughout life. And so our wives normally pray more diligently, more easily, and more naturally than we do. They are able to declare their dependence upon God. They are able to sense their helplessness before God. And we need to learn something from them. Never met very many men who were proud of their prayer life. And yet, we must be talking to God. Not only talking to God, we need to be listening to God. We must develop an ability to fellowship with God and be able to hear Him speaking to us through His Word and through the other avenues that He addresses us. Well, uh, a man of God, his relationships are in place. Normally speaking, you find that a person of God will be a product of a small uh, fellowship of some kind. Uh, I heard the word used earlier this evening, accountability group. Uh, <laughs> the nature of those varies from individual to individual, but I would promise you that 
if the total fellowship experience which a person has is in the congregational setting of the local church and there is no small group encounter around the Word of God, around prayer, uh, uh, the mutual encouragement that is thought of in Hebrews 10 where it says, Forsake not the assembling of ourselves together for the encouraging of one another to love and to good works. Without that, you are missing an indispensable ingredient in your development as a Christian, as an overcomer, one who is going to serve God no matter what the current condition of Christianity institutionally is in your environment. Are you saying that the functioning Christian and the overcomer are one and the same? What's that? The functioning Christian and the overcomer, are you saying that they are the same? I think the same thing, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another thing that uh, you will find in a, a functioning Christian person is a burden for the lost. It is a belief that any person without Jesus Christ, his personal Savior, is uh, the uh, has the prospect of a Christless eternity in hell. And uh, there are people who have the gift of evangelism. There are people who do this much more easily than others. Uh, there are people that intimidate all of us with, by the ease with which they do this. But needless to say, when Paul wrote Timothy, he said, do the work of an evangelist. There was no... Timothy may not have had the gift of evangelism, but we are all to do the work of evangelism. We are all to be involved in evangelism. And this means that we are concerned about the people that we work with. We are concerned about the, the, not only the members of our family, but the neighborhood that we live in. Now, I'm talking about things which are difficult for me, and I assume difficult for most of you. I'm a kind of a high-profile evangelical. I've done everything wrong that you can do as a Christian over the years, 30-some-odd years. And uh, uh, I think my neighbors think we're going to burn crosses in my front yard all the time. I, uh, I have not been able to do anything in my neighborhood over the years, and it's a matter of great concern to me. Uh, somebody described me to one of my friends once. As, you know, He's that religious kook. You know that guy. He's a... He's a religious. I have to think I'm fairly nice. Anyway, I uh, uh, and uh, and I, uh, whatever I've done in the past to gain that reputation is certainly not one of comfort, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And I'm and I only tell you that experience because I don't want you to think that I'm giving you platitudes which can be implemented without any cost in your life. There are many ways to evangelize. There's friendship evangelism is becoming a very prominent. Uh, feature. I'm involved with the search ministry group. I'm well aware of CBMC's emphasis on friendship evangelism. And there are ways to do evangelism, but for most of us, there are no easy ways. If someone says one thing that the believer and the unbeliever agree on is they both hate evangelism. <laughs> and so I would, not, I would not have you... I'm simply describing the burden and the characteristics and the lifestyle of the overcomer that I believe is the functioning Christian described in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, well, I said that he's a part of an accountability group. And I think that, that sooner or later that a functioning Christian will assume the responsibility for the spiritual development of another person. He will go into, the, as the navigator would say, the discipling ministry. There is nothing that provokes discipline in your life than to suddenly be responsible for spiritual development on the part of another individual. And so a functioning layman, a functioning Christian, will eventually get involved in, a, in accepting the responsibility to encourage another Christian to grow and to become a disciple.
Paul told Timothy to commit these things to faithful men who will be in turn be able to commit them again to another generation of faithful men. And a functioning Christian is a person who is involved in that project, in that, in that process, and he will not be dependent upon the institutional church to get it done. Yes, sir. Friendship evangelism. Let me come back to that. Let me do my fifth one, then I'll come back to friendship evangelism. Okay? Uh, the fifth one is I say that, that the, the, the functioning Christian has a good idea of what God is doing. Now, this is another way of saying that he is tuned in to the program of God. There are two guys in the Old Testament that are very interesting, two outstanding men that are very interesting, that are very provocative. One of them is Joseph, and the other one is Daniel. And when I talk about an understanding of what God is doing in our day, uh, Joseph was the most successful Jew in the Old Testament insofar as his relationship to the Gentile world. He became the number two to Pharaoh in Egypt during the time of the captivity there. And, and so if we had written his obituary, we would have said, this is the man who rose from prison to the number two job in, in, the, in the nation, in the kingdom of Egypt, he's the one who designed the plan by which the, uh, the granaries were filled up during the good times and the famines were avoided as far as the people were concerned. He is the one who put Pharaoh in control of all, he, we would say all those things about it. Do you know what Hebrews 11 says about Joseph? Why he's great? Now, I'm talking about the greatest Jew in terms of achievement in Gentile world. Do you know what does anybody know what the, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews says was his mark of greatness? He gave instructions that his bones not be buried in Egypt, but be taken back to, to the land of Palestine to be buried there. And the writer of the book of Hebrews says, this is a man who understood that his relationship to the nation of Israel and God's commitment to that nation, his participation in it, was a greater thing than all of the achievement which he accomplished in his life on earth. His funeral instructions, according to the Spirit of God, are the most significant thing that Joseph ever did. And what they did was they told the children of Israel that their sojourn in Egypt was temporary that God was committed to them and eventually He would take them back into the land of Palestine. And you can read, when they left under Moses, they gathered up His bones. And you can read 40 years later in the book of Joshua where they finally put His bones to rest. The other one is Daniel. Daniel lived in a very hostile uh, Gentile environment. In Daniel 6, about the fourth verse, it says that Daniel's performance was circumspect in every every degree uh, that he performed but in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel it shows him perusing looking through the prophecy of Jeremiah which had been written before the captivity and you could see Daniel's perspective as one who knew that his 70 years in Babylon were only temporary even though he would never personally leave his identification was with the people of God who were promised to return to the land of Palestine, promised to all of the kingdom and the receivers of all of the kingdom promises which had originally been given to Abraham. 
These are two men whose great as their lives were by our standards never lost their perspective of where they fit into the program of God. And the whole of prophecy, the whole of the prophetic scriptures, in my judgment, is given to you and me that we might have perspective. And as functioning Christians, as overcomers, we have a sense of what God is doing and how what we are doing today relates to it in the eternal value system. So those are the five things that I would say that a functioning Christian manifests. And let's see if I can repeat them because I haven't got it written down here in front of me. But but the, the man of the Word, the man of prayer, speaks to uh, a personal walk with God. And then two, what did I say? Which one did I put? Relationship with... Uh... Okay, the relationships are in place as far as the first one. That's the first one. The relationship with God are in place. And then I've got the, the relationship to an accountability group, uh, the relationship... To, in a discipleship motif, uh, evangelism, and then the fifth one is a eschatological or a perspective of what God is doing in the day and age in which He lives. And those are the five things. And, and there's nothing magic about those five. Don't get me wrong. Those are just thoughts that have, have been developed over the years as to what that overcomer looks like. You look at his life and what do you see? The man who is not blown about by the trials and tribulations of the institutional church. I've said on other occasions that one of the characteristics of a mature Christian is that he has a satisfactory relationship with the church. Now, somebody says, I don't have any problem with that. It's when we decide what is satisfactory that we seem to have a problem. And because there's a difference of opinion as to what satisfactory is. Satisfactory relationship with the church church is one that does not involve any resentment or hostility on your part. Uh, one that ministers to you and your own personal ministry is not compromised by feelings of frustration and uh, and uh, hostility on anybody's part. For obviously, for one person, this can be intense involvement. Another person, this can be relatively passive involvement. Because I speak on this subject frequently, I find it, that for me it's important that I maintain a strong working relationship with my church. Uh, I'm presently chairman of the Board of Elders. Uh, I avoided that for about 28 years, but I finally got the job, not particularly enjoying it. But anyway, uh, I feel like it's very necessary for me to, uh, very, very appropriate for me to assume that responsibility uh, at this point in time in my life. And, uh, and uh, so I would, I'm, I'm not saying this. I'm, nothing I've said is in the context of one who has ever turned his back on or has ever walked away from that relationship with the local church. Although, on the other hand, I have demanded of it that it be consistent with the ministry from time to time that I believe God has called me to. Now, I've got a question over here about friendship evangelism, and I have a couple other questions which I'd be glad to answer. Uh, friendship evangelism is a new buzzword. Uh, but what it speaks to is the passage in Peter where it says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. It's the idea of building of relationships or using the relationships that God gives you in every context of life and as the young life would say, winning the right to be heard for Jesus Christ. It is, uh, it is, um, uh, and I don't want to draw comparisons, but there's a form of evangelism which is a valid form. It's all valid. It's all valid. There's a form of evangelism which says that uh, door-to-door, cold turkey evangelism, the presentation of the gospel, the Kennedy regime, the Kennedy routine under the uh, evangelism explosion, the four spiritual laws, and all the variations of these things in which every encounter is an opportunity to present the gospel. Uh, we all know that that 
it is one thing to present the gospel to a person we're not going to see again ever so far as we know. It is another thing to present it to somebody we're going to be working with for the next 15 years and experiencing the rejection which comes if the response is not favorable. So friendship evangelism, and there are a lot of people involved in it. I mentioned CBMC, Search Ministries. Uh, Joe Aldrich up in Multnomah School of the Bible has written extensively about it. And it's, it's, a new, it's a new thrust. It doesn't replace anything. It's just a new thrust that says, uh, let's develop sensitivity, skill, or, or tic- the ability to articulate so that when, the, when that person does say to us uh, in the opportunity of, uh, of uh, what is the reason for the hope that's within you, we can give an articulate answer. I don't believe the gospel can be communicated any other way than in words. And the Christian needs to be certain that he's able to articulate when the opportunity arises. And the spookiest time of all to do it is with somebody with whom you know that you'll have contact tomorrow, the next day, and the day after. So friendship evangelism is, a, is an effort to address that void that all of that, that spooky feeling that all of us have when we become concerned about those with whom we have more than just casual acquaintance. Yes, sir. I've got a question back here. It was first. Let me ask you somebody. Why do I say that he does? I don't think I said that in the five. I said that I have said that in other contexts. That I, I do, and I personally believe that uh, that uh, um, well. That I get that question occasionally, and, and it's a <coughs> it, it's the question is why do I say that every overcomer needs a satisfactory relationship with a local church? Uh, let me give you. Let me, the, one of the things about the church in the New Testament is there there were no competitive congregations. There were not Baptist, Presbyterian, and Episcopalian churches. There were not churches on all four corners of every intersection. When the church at Ephesus was the church at Ephesus, now they may have met in houses, but they knew they were part of the larger church. They didn't meet together, in other words, as a large group all the time. But the church at Rome, the church at Ephesus, the church at uh, uh, Thessalonica was not divided up into little competitive congregations all the time. Now, so, a Christian in those days was a member of the church that was identified by the city where he lived. Now, we can't do that now. We obviously can't do that now because things are broken down, and at least in the American scheme of things, we've broken it down to where we could have four or five hundred different denominations in a good-sized city today. But there has to be some effort to identify ourselves with the larger body of Christ, uh, some kind of display of unity. And if I find my entire satisfaction with three or four or five people and ignore the larger body of Christ, then I think I'm making a statement which is contrary to the wishes of the Lord. I think that in some... Well, let me answer that by saying that, that when they require that commitment of you, they're either right or they're wrong. Okay? And when they require that commitment... Did you all ever hear the question? This is a man with the youth for Christ who says he always feels the tension of never quite doing enough that the local pastor wants him to do with whatever church he's involved with. That's a very common experience. Now, the reason that he can ask you to do that is that he believes that what he's doing is the preferred way that God operates. And so you can get along with him just fine if you will, by your action and attitude, agree with him that what he's doing is superior to what you're doing. Now, if each one of them is equally of equal value in the sight of God, then he has no prior claim on you. And you have no prior claim on him if you're equally. But if one of them is, has a greater priority in the, in the affection of God, then that one has the right 
to ask the other one to be subservient and be responsive and submissive to it. Well, the problem with it is I can explain it to you that way, but the tension will not go away. Okay, I understand. I, I'm satisfied it will not go away. It's based on 30-some-odd years of observing the situation. And the thing that I think that you have to do in those situations is you have to recognize where he's coming from. You have to accept the fact that uh, he, he has been trained, he's been, he's been committed to the fact that that particular expression of the body of Christ is superior to whatever it is you're doing. And then you have to, if he's wrong, then you have to understand that he's weak at that point. And so the burden is on you not to respond to him and have him dominate your life, but to be understanding of where he comes from. And uh, I hate to tell you this, but it puts him in the category of the weaker brethren, uh, I believe, of Romans 13. But uh, that you'll get along with them better if you do it that way. I'm not on staff anymore. Huh? I'm not on staff now. I was as you about the month ago. Okay. Well, I understand. But same thing. To the, the question back here, that, and I'll get to you. You said that at some point, uh, what, all of us are going to come up against premise that whatever we're doing could best be done through the local church. What do you say to that, and what should we say to that? When what now? When it comes up that whatever we're doing would best be done under the auspices of the local church. Well, I just I just disagree with it as nicely as I'm able. Sometimes I'm not as able to be as nice as I am other times, but I, <laughs> I and, and I'm not proud of that. I'm, I'm just saying that there are times when I'm considered outspoken. It's a little bit too outspoken, and I am. Um, but as I said to him, I think that you have to go back and you have to understand it that the person who feels that way to you has been trained, has been educated in most cases to believe that what he's doing is a superior expression of the body of Christ. And one thing I have not said is that there's a book called The Problem of Wineskins was written, and there's a chapter, I believe it's chapter 12, and the book was by Howard Snyder. It was a very well-received book a few years ago, in which he has a chapter captioned Church and Culture, in which he says that there is no such thing as church versus parachurch. He says that Every expression of the body of Christ institutionally is parachurch because nobody can claim to be the church. Now, Augustine did claim that the Catholic Church was the church. But in 20th century United States of North America, nobody in his right mind can say that anybody can build a theological or ecclesiological box and say God is in this box in a way which he is not evident in any other box. But is that not what the institutional church is saying? I said nobody in his right mind. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody in his right mind can claim in the United States based on common everyday sense that anybody has built a theological or an ecclesial, a church structure or or a system of thought into which God is obligated to get in preference to any other situation. And so Snyder simply says that nothing is any more than a cultural expression of Christianity. Is the Holy Spirit here tonight? Does anybody believe that the Holy Spirit is here tonight? And we meet here. Does anybody believe that the Holy Spirit is not here because we're not constituted a certain way? He says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Who's building his church? Matthew 16, Christ says, I will build my church. And he never said to me, Bill... If you work yourself to death, you and I can perhaps maybe get the church built. I've read theologians say that Matthew 16 is an invitation for us to join in the task of helping him build his church. It's nothing of the sort. It's a declaration that the God of the universe says on the proclamation that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
He's building His church. He is not a day late. He is not a day ahead of time. Even through this dark age, in the, in the break we were discussing this, He was on schedule here. You and I may not understand it, but He was on schedule. People were trusting Christ and walking by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they were serving God during that period of time, and God was on schedule with the building of His church. And the funnest life that you and I can live is to figure out what God's doing in the time and the place where you and I live, getting as close to the action as we can, and praising God for what He's doing and allowing Him to use us to the extent that He's able to use us in what He's doing. Interject a sense of excitement into the Christian life. Christ said, I've come that they might live, that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. What is the abundant life? It's finding out what God is doing and doing it with Him in the community, the time, and the place that he's asked us uh, to live. And uh, so, uh, there is no answer to your question that will make them happy. But let me tell you something. If you understand the issue, and they don't understand the issue, then you're that much more spiritually informed than they are. And the bad news is, that puts the responsibility for the maintenance of the relationship on you. You know, spirituality, spiritual knowledge doesn't get you any perks. You know, you don't get a long black Cadillac for learning Scripture verses. In the body of Christ, knowledge and spirituality create responsibility. The more you know about God, the more you're able to serve Him. The more you're able to adopt the servant life, the more able you are to defer to the weaker brethren who thinks the box that he's building is the favorite one that God ever had. You know, I mean, he just, he just got a problem, and you have to help him work through that problem. And you can't do it by criticizing him, by confrontation, by arguing, screaming, ignoring him. You, in other words, it takes a relationship to see him through that. And let me say that Jesus went through that problem with the Pharisees, and uh, he was uh, spectacular in his lack of success from time to time with the Pharisees. Yes, sir. Well, obviously, uh, the quality of that pastor-teacher leadership varies a great deal. And uh, so, one time you might be in a situation where it would be tremendously beneficial to you to be under a particular pastor-teacher who had something to say for you significant for that time in your life. We were helpful. Other times, it cannot be quite that satisfactory. But one of the characteristics of the overcomer is he's going to feed himself. He is not going to let the lack of teaching or the, 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 the abundance of teaching be the, the, the influencing factor as to the quality of his Christian life. He is going to meet his own He's going to see that his needs are met for the Word and for fellowship with the Lord. And I said earlier, my answer to it is why be involved with the church is I think that, that when you go into these small discipleship groups and make these your church, then I think that you, you're in danger of becoming very, very nearsighted as far as what God is doing in the community at large. And uh, uh, we, there's no church in Fort Worth that I can join that would be the church of all of Fort Worth but I can't identify myself with a larger situation than that little discipleship group uh, where I have a better perspective of what God's, and I can become a better part of what God's doing in the entire community. And that's really the only reason I can give you. And also, I think there's, there's another reason. And I think that a lot of things that we do, whether we like it or not, we do it because there's a spirit of obedience involved in it. I go to church because I think God wants me to go to church. I'm active in church because I think He wants me to be active in church. 
I don't go to church. Where I get in trouble with church is if I go saying, I hope I get something out of it today. And I go home and I say, I didn't. Uh, you know, there are people that say, the question is, did God get anything out of my going? And there's a whole lot of, there's a whole lot of interaction over this subject. But basically, I think obedience, um, you know, we went through an era, for instance, just as an illustration, we went through an era in which kids came and cut offs and everything else to church. Well, what was my reaction to that? Well, I didn't like it. Anyway, I, uh, but I thought, well, that's really not my responsibility how they come to church. But there's one thing I could do. I can get up on Sunday morning and shower and shave and put on fresh clothes. And, 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 and the, the, the book of Malachi talks about offering uh, sick and lame sacrifices. In other words, after all, we're going to burn the thing up. What do we care if it's lame or one of its eyes is out? And this becomes to reflect an attitude about God. And if I think about God and my relationship to Him in terms of, well, I'll just take my old sweaty weekend self to church today and do God a big favor, you can understand that I'm getting, I'm getting into to trouble areas. Although, I don't want to be judgmental about the way other people dress. There is a parallel for me to, to be taken, to, to be, to be offering figuratively, uh, lame and blind animals for sacrifice. And that's, that's really, I'm giving you my personal rationale for this. Okay, yes. Which one's first? Are there some general principles for determining uh, which local church to affiliate with, how long to stay in that group, or how to counsel somebody else? The first principle is which one does your wife want to join? I mean, that's the first principle. Uh, okay, uh, the question is, and I've been asked to state the question for the tape here, the question is, are there any principles to determine uh, which local church you should join? Uh, in Dallas, Texas, <clears throat> they most of the graduates, it seems, all this is not true, a good percentage of them stay in Dallas and form churches. And there are Bible churches on every corner in Dallas. And so somebody did a survey once as to why people move from one to the other, and they concluded that the, the most prevalent reason that they move is because of the youth program. In other words, the thing that people change churches over more than anything else, doctrinal considerations aside, is whether their children are being ministered to in a way that they feel is appropriate. And obviously that's very important. Uh, the, after all, the scriptures do not give us any basis. Not only they don't talk about uh, they don't talk about changing churches uh, in the uh, in the scriptures. And we discussed earlier that that the, the pattern of the Old Testament was that there was no possibility of starting a new nation of Israel. But uh, I, it's, just a, it's a subjective thing. And uh, I think that, that uh, the, the danger is that you become a church tramp. Uh, there's also a danger that uh, if you've got a superstar in the church that you may, you may uh, expect more than in fact can be delivered. There's, a, there's an invitation to passivity when you have a... Uh, the guy who seems to grow to me, and just, just over the years, watching people grow, the guy who grows is a guy who, uh, who's moved along in his Christian life pretty well, but he's developed his own disciplines for ministry, and uh, just a little bit unhappy with a local church. He just doesn't go there every Sunday expecting all of his needs to be met. You know, he, he, Just enough of an irritant to keep him moving on his own. Now, I can't... S- <laughs> now, this, you know... We've got this big, man, we got a humongous church in Fort Worth called McKinney Memorial Bible Church. We, we processed about 2,500 people a Sunday through that thing. And, uh, 
the revolving door, you know, these come through. I, I think more is done in the coffee room between services. You know, I, but it, the thing, it's an exciting thing because there's so much going on. And, uh, you know, here I'm a long way from there, and I can say the preacher suffers because he can't get control of it. And we rejoice because he can't get control of it, you know. <laughs> and, and I don't mean that. I don't want to sound that it sound as bad, but there is a tension all the time. How do you get your arms around this thing? And uh, we don't want our arms around it. We had our arms around it for the first 12 years, and we grew from 50 to 150. We let God put His arms around it, and the next 15 years, it went from 150 to 2,000 or 2,500. And so I think a good church is one that's slightly out of control. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> that didn't sound right, but I really do think that. I think that's true. One, one word, you can look at it and say, if the Holy Spirit's not in charge here, we've got a problem. You know, <laughs> That's kind of the way I think about it. And, uh, it, it, but I think in very practical terms, it has to be a situation that, that ministers to you that is not, that, that, that if, if there's not complete satisfaction, it is not such complete distraction that you can't pursue your own walk with God normally. And I think that for us in the United States today, it's certainly necessary that we evaluate it and its impact on our children because it's so, that's so critical. 